It's a Friday in mid-July, and we actually have a couple of good news stories to talk about in this podcast. Today in Ohio, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. And before we get to that good news, let's talk about the bad news. Cuyahoga County Executive Candidate Lee Weingart announced what he called a big endorsement from former Cleveland City Councilman Bashir Jones this week, saying Jones is the kind of guy he wants in his cabinet. Why might Weingart be rethinking his thoughts this morning? Yeah, we... Courtney. Yes, so we learned late last night that... Well, it appears some kind of federal investigations underway. City Hall last night confirmed that they'd received multiple FBI subpoenas seeking information about the former councilman who, you know, he gave up his seat last year representing the Huff and St. Clair Superior neighbors, neighborhoods to to try and make a bid at the mayor's office. And, and he failed there, so he's no longer in council. But, um, you know, we don't know what these subpoenas seek. The city isn't saying what kind of documents they're going after. The council president, Blaine Griffin, doesn't yet know what's in the subpoenas, it sounds like. But he also confirmed that they have been served. So we don't know what this is about, but something is brewing, apparently. Well, the reason we don't know what it's about is because Justin Bibb is not living up to his promise about public records. I got the tip. Something was up about Bashir mid-afternoon yesterday. We put in the request for this very early. Uh, the reporter, Adam Fries learned about the subpoenas very quickly, and we didn't get them. And that's ridiculous. They're automatically public record. When Justin Bibb called me to let me know he was going to run for mayor, we had about an hour talk. A year ago. And one of the things I asked him is, what are you going to do about public records? And he absolutely promised that he would fix what was so seriously broken under Frank Jackson, who was notorious for being slow. But Frank Jackson knew you had to turn over subpoenas because they got a lot of them while he was in the mayor. And we got them right away. This is ridiculous that there's this kind of a investigation going on. There are public records about it, and we did not get them. That's why we don't know. That's why Blaine Griffin doesn't know. I got to say, Blaine Griffin and council have been more forthcoming with us than the Bibb administration. So, so, you know, we're going to go hard today, and if we have to, we'll drag them into court. Subpoenas are always public. We've run up against governments that try to stop it, and our lawyers bludgeon them, and they turn them over. Even Jimmy DeMora knew you had to turn over the subpoenas, so shame on Justin Bibb for this. And if Blaine Griffin is the more open guy, then maybe he ought to run for mayor in three and a half years. We've got to fix this public records issue. We have no idea what he's under investigation for then. Yeah, it, no, we have no clues here. You know, I'm I'm not entirely familiar with Bibb's entire career on city council. At the end of the year last year, we saw a couple contracts go through, and and one of them was for um, Neon, the neighborhood health clinic. We have no idea for what it's worth if this is related to that, but there were a lot of questions raised about that contract back then, just as an FYI is a, a recent thing that kind of raised eyebrows, but we really have no no clue what's going on. But I, I think it is worth noting here that if this is some kind of uh, nonsense happening at, at city council, it, it would be this, it would be the second instance in recent years. You know, remember we had that big case with former councilman Ken Johnson. So I'm really curious to see where this goes. 
Oh, Courtney, the line of city council people who've been <laughs> investigated over the years is a long one. He'd just be the latest in a very long line. We should point out he was a one term councilman. He then ran for mayor, had early numbers that looked good because he had been a radio DJ. But the more he campaigned, the more people realized there was no there there. What was striking about his run for mayor is when you talked to him, he had done no work. He didn't know the issues at all. And when you talk to Justin Bibb, Justin Bibb had done all the work. He knew everything, chapter and verse, had a plan for it all. And I think that's why Bibb emerged while while uh, Jones fell back. Jones also did something very strange after he lost the primary. He came out and endorsed Kevin Kelly over Justin Bibb after having run hard against Kevin Kelly. It was one that had everybody scratching their heads and seemed like sour grapes. You remember that? Yeah, that had me scratching my head. That's for sure. I wasn't really expecting that move. Not sure what that was well, about. Well, we... We expect we'll know what's in those subpoenas before day's end, because if not, we'll be going to court with Justin Bibb. He better turn them over. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The drubbing of Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan and Attorney General Dave Yost continued Thursday for what they said about the 10-year-old rape and abortion case. With Jordan, the drubbing came from his colleagues. What happened, Lisa? Well, there was a House Judiciary Committee meeting yesterday, and they were talking about the effects of Roe versus Wade being overturned on other personal liberties like gay marriage and contraception. Jordan is the top GOP member of that committee, and his colleagues couldn't resist taking a few swipes at him after his first saying that the story about the 10-year-old girl being pregnant and having to get an abortion across state lines was a lie, and then never did apologize and actually defended his statements and still is to this day, as we know. For instance, uh, Democratic Representative Ted Lieu of California, who is a Cleveland native, he criticized abortion laws that sent that girl to Indiana for an abortion, and he called out what he says are modern Republicans for denying the story and called out Jordan specifically for deleting his tweet where he referenced a Washington Examiner story that quoted our Attorney General Dave Yost saying it was a fabrication. And um, he, you know, Lou went on to say that, you know, MAGA Republicans want government mandated pregnancies for everybody. And that is extreme. Jordan in his own you know, way he read a list of over 50 churches and pregnancy crisis centers, which are not abortion centers. They're they try to keep you from getting an abortion. And he said, you know, they've been subject to a vandal vandalism and attacks over the last 10 days. But then uh, Jamie Raskin, the de Democrat from Maryland, says, well, he had his own list of murdered abortion providers that went back decades. He says, does Jordan and his colleagues, do they want to reject decades of proven acts of murder and violence against abortion, abortion providers? So, yeah, everybody got their shots in. I, I'm somebody who's made a fair share of mistakes. Our organization is one that makes a fair share of mistakes and everybody sees them because we're so out there. And the only path forward when you screw up is to say you're sorry and try not to do it again. I cannot for the life of me understand why Jim Jordan and Dave Yost, after having done what many people are finding to be reprehensible, jumping the gun and trying to see this 10-year-old's rape case as a hoax, they don't apologize. 
They, I, instead, Jim Jordan's trying to say, well, it's an illegal alien and, and that, that raped her. And so this is an immigration issue. Wrong. You you came out and called the report of a 10 year old being raped and having to go to Indiana for an abortion because of Ohio's law a lie. Dave Yost, despite having been diagnosed with COVID, was in such a rush to go on the air and harumph and condescend that that he jumped to the same conclusions. I don't have a whiff of this case. And he probably didn't try to sniff one out. Just say you're sorry. You screwed up. This is a bad, bad mistake. And in Yost's case, I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff Crossman doesn't build a major campaign out of this. He's up for re-election in November. People don't take kindly to mistreating 10-year-old rape. Well, and another thing Yost did was he tried to turn the tables and say, well, you know, because there is an exception in the Ohio law for what's called a medical emergency to preserve the life of the mother or preserve a major bodily function. He says in this case with the 10-year-old, they could have possibly used that exception. But of course, everything's in such flux right now. We really don't know what's, you know, how to apply this law. And it's like, well, you're saying that now. Well, she could have gotten abortion in Ohio because of this, but she didn't. Yeah. But look what, but look what's happening in Indiana. The doctor that did the abortion where it's legal, that attorney general is already trying to investigate her. No doctor is, this is not, if I make a misjudgment, then I'm reviewed by the medical board. If, if you do the abortion on the 10-year-old because you say this endangers her, some strident Dave Yost-style attorney general could charge you with a crime and try to lock you up. Doctors are not going to make that, that decision. They're not going to take that risk. What the legislators have done have taken away medical judgment here and put their own values into it. Dave Yost is trying to duck and dodge. He was wrong. What he said was wrong. It was condescending and it was awful. And the only thing he should be doing now is apologizing. This thing has legs. It continues to get reported on because people are so aghast at what these guys did. And, and this is one of the repercussions of overturning a 50-year president. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's been an amazing week. I, I still uh, am surprised at how badly they're misfiring. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The iconic Jesse Jackson came to town this week to attempt negotiating peace between Sherwin-Williams and the Black Contractors Group over minority participation in the paint company's new headquarters. Laura, did Jackson make any progress? I think he definitely got people's attention, and he certainly tried, but I don't know that his visit actually settled any issues, considering that both sides are still sniping at each other afterward. So Jackson spoke during a news conference at the Greater Abyssinia Baptist Church. He said, we didn't come to destroy, we've come to build. But And Norm Edwards, who's been spearheading this kind of push for months and months against Jerome Williams, said they've not done enough. They're continuing to fail the black and minority community, and they've only hired one black board member after they did their first protest. And they, he wants more black architects, engineers, and construction managers involved in the project. Sherwin-Williams on the other side, hand says they're promoting diversity thoughtfully and consistently. They're using uh, this group, this program called Building Our Future to increase the number of underrepresented groups. But they took issue at Norm Edwards' group, the Black Contractors Group, and said it's unfortunate some are using their personal agendas and animosities to drive a false narrative. So it doesn't sound like there's a lot of peace yet. Yeah, I, I wondered whether the presence of Jesse Jackson might get Sherwin-Williams to 
extend more of an olive branch, but it was clear from their statement that they're fed up with this and they're that they're done talking and that they they do believe that Norm Edwards is using muscle tactics. So it's it's interesting that they got Jesse Jackson to come to town, but it does not seem like it has changed anything. Yeah. And this has been a long campaign. I don't know how many months we've been seeing the press releases and protests, and and um, they've brought a lot, a, a number of dignitaries to town to try to bring attention to this. But Sharon Williams says they've awarded one hundred nine million dollars on contracts to minority, female, and small Cleveland business enterprises. Obviously, when you get um, some deals from the state and the city, you you have to meet certain standards, and it doesn't look like they're ready to budge to meet what Norm Edwards is just demanding. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the latest reason a renovation of the existing Cuyahoga County Jail might be a terrible, expensive idea? Courtney, we had an interesting story that brought up some previously undisclosed complications of trying to make the existing jail work. Yeah, really important info here from reporter Caitlin Durbin, I think. So this, this all kind of revolves around the, the state rules that, that mandate how jails should be run and, and how inmates should be cared for. And there are a handful of issues that Cuyahoga County Jail, for years and years and years, they failed this portion of the state inspections of their jail because they're failing to live up to those required standards. And, and these failures relate to undersized cells for inmates, uh, much less space than they're entitled to under Ohio's administrative code. And then it also relates to not enough natural lighting, not enough showers, basically those kinds of things, not enough space and room for inmates getting what they need. So the state for years has been, and more recently as well, it it kind of lets those chronic year after year violations go. And, And big part of the reason there is because the county, at least now, is promising to build a new jail to to fix these problems so we don't have the small cells in, in the current jail. Now, really interesting response from the state here. Cuyahoga County cells are currently grandfathered in under old rules for jails built prior to 1983, and that allows inmates to have at least 48 square feet of space. Uh, newer standards require 70 square feet of space per inmate. And what we learned from the state is that if we pursue this idea of renovation that's currently being reprobed by the committee considering what to do about the future jail, renovation would require the county to go back and make every cell that's undersized and it, that's part of those grandfathered rules in for old jails, they'd have to expand those to today's current much larger standards. And, and those that are involved in the planning of the jail say that that would make it just impractical, if not cost prohibitive, to be able to renovate the jail and have enough inmate beds in there while accommodating those newer, larger space standards. So this seems to me at least a huge wrinkle in any plans out there to renovate the jail. It doesn't seem like the space is in there that would be needed. No, you basically would be gutting the tower having to build a much different footprint, and then you wouldn't have enough beds for what the plan is. There just isn't enough room. Uh, so I, I don't, and that would be so expensive to just gut the whole thing and, and put new walls in. And still, you'd get no sunlight, you'd get no 
fresh air. I mean, all of the other issues would, would remain. You would just have bigger cells. So it makes it pretty clear that that is not a feasible solution. Uh, we'll have to see what the next step is. I, they still think they want to hurry up and sign a contract to buy that toxic site so that they can get some contracts let before the next county executive arrives instead of looking for the ideal site, which has yet to arise. Check out the story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the disturbing finding by university hospitals about the long-term results of discriminatory lending known as redlining? Lisa, this is a study that's very bona fide, and it, it's kind of, it's not shocking what they found, but it's surprising at the long legs this problem Yeah, has. it really stretches across decades. This study was done by university hospitals. The lead author was cardiologist Dr. Sadir Al-Kindi, and she she and her colleagues found a direct relationship between the grading system used by the homeowner's loan corporation for neighborhood lending risk and the risk for cardiovascular disease. So residents in areas with D grades, it's a letter grading system, D being the worst risk to lenders, and D areas are outlined in red, hence the term redlining. But these were redlined decades ago. But people living in these same areas today still have the worst health outcomes and still the highest number of health risk factors. These results hold across 200 U.S. cities. The study compared red redlining maps with graded risk to current census tracts from 200 U.S. cities. They found a, a 6.9 prevalence of cardiovascular disease, stroke, or kidney disease in the A, which is the best category. But once you got to the D category, 65.5% of the census tracts had, you know, the, these risks for cardiovascular disease and stroke. So this holds across decades. Yeah, I, that's just the, the surprise, something that was done decades ago that was very bad, very wrong, very damaging, could have health effects this far along the road. It's, it's, you just wonder about the ramifications of other bad decisions from back then as you study them, what else we might learn. And this comports with earlier research that has been done that shows in redlined areas, people have shorter lifespans, higher rates of chronic disease and infant mortality. So this is just adding to the body of research. Good work by university hospitals. It's a, it's a groundbreaking study. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, enough of the bad news. Let's have a good news story, Laura. Ohio's retiring Senator Rob Portman has reached across the aisle far more often than many of his Republican colleagues. And before he leaves, he's taking a stab at improving collegiality and compromise. How so? Yeah, hats off to Rob Portman for this. He was going to participate in an Oxford-style debate with the Democratic colleague, and that's going to be U.S. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He wants to restore a spirit of compromise and consensus for the good of the American people. Well, okay. So this is going to happen at George Washington University. It's going to be live-streamed on C-SPAN if everybody wants to watch it, and CBS News congressional correspondent Nicole Killian will be the moderator. This is actually the second installment of Three debates sponsored by the Bipartisan Policy Center, the Orange G. Hatch Foundation, and the Edward N. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate. So the first one was in Boston between Lindsey Graham and Bernie Sanders. Uh, that was broadcast on Fox News last month. I must have missed that, but I, 
I'm surprised I didn't see any like bloopers, a blooper reel come out for that because that seems pretty interesting. Well, what gets all the news is the rancor. I mean, what gets all the right. news is the Jim Jordans and the Dave Yosts. And when people get along, that doesn't seem to be quite as interesting. But a salute to Rob Portman for giving it a try. So I, I looked up what Oxford-style debating is because I did not know what that meant. That, so that's a competitive debate format featuring a resolution that's supported by one side and opposed by the other. So I don't know what topic they're debating, but this could be interesting. And I agree, you got to give some Port, Portman some credit here. He's retiring, obviously, so he has really nothing to lose. But it does say something about how, what he believes government should be doing. Well, he has something to lose. He could lose the debate. <laughs> well, <laughs> That is that is true. But we don't know what he's going to do after he retires. So, hey, if he's going to work for more partisan, you know, bipartisan cooperation, I'm all for that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland did something different with the police union and contract negotiations this time around. It settled early. Courtney, for years and years, Cleveland mayors have left the police union to the end of the negotiation. So they get all the other unions that are easier to negotiate with to accept lousy raises. And then they go to the police and say, this is what you get. And the police are stuck because if they go to arbitration, Cleveland goes in and says, hey, pattern bargaining, everybody gets the same. That didn't happen this time. Yeah, we're seeing a a pretty quick resolution here in how the negotiations turned out this year. So we learned yesterday from the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association that a tentative agreement has already been reached. We, um, it, it still requires approval from the union's members, of course, and from city council. This contract would last through March 2025. And, and really the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about here is a 2% raise each year in 2022 or 2023 and 24. You know, that's on the tails of a bump up that already happened this year. And you know, I think it's important to note Mayor Bibb, when he was talking about addressing crime in the city and, and, and how we approach policing, has really placed a lot of emphasis on getting wages up for police officers to get our numbers up. We've got a serious shortage right now, and that's been one of Bibb's, Bibb's big fixes. However, I think it's, it's also worth noting, so with these 2% raises, starting officers in Cleveland would receive you know, about $60,000, $61,000 a year over the next couple of years. And officers with five years of experience would earn about seventy four, seventy five thousand. dollars $75,000. But we should really put that in context with other departments. We've heard concerns about Columbus police coming up here and poaching our officers because they offer higher pay. Well, their starting pay is about $7,000 beyond what this new Cleveland amount's going to be. And their officers at five years get over a hundred thousand dollars compared. Yeah. I, I, I was actually really surprised the police settled for so little with all the talk about raising their salaries. It's like 2% that isn't going to get us anywhere near competitive. You know, we keep talking about the, the, uh, the funds that the city and the County got to, to, for the stimulus, you know, that, use it for this, get, offer some bigger money to start getting police officers to want to come here. I, with inflation where it is and with the comparative pay in other cities, I thought the police had a case to make for a much bigger raise. I'm surprised they're taking so little. Yeah. And especially with Bib out there so prominently talking about raises, I assume the officers want money. Bib has made it seem like he wants to give them more 
I'm really curious how they landed on these numbers. You know, there's some other things in the contract that are worth noting. There's a small bump up for trainees before they get sworn in as police officers. There's a new holiday. Juneteenth will be the 12th paid holiday that officers get. There's paid leave for Ohio National Guard members and some changes to discipline. Employees are are definitely subject to discipline if they, they fail a drug test, whereas the old contract said they might be subject to discipline. But I was kind of expected more wages here. I'm, I'm scratching my head on that one a little bit. Yeah, we'll have to see what city council does with it. Maybe they'll unilaterally say it's not enough. We need more. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the latest distressing sign that the new COVID variants are beginning to hit in Ohio? Lisa, I feel like everybody I know suddenly has had COVID. Courtney had COVID. One of our retired colleagues just had COVID. My wife has a group of people she attends Playhouse Square Plays with. All of them have recently had COVID. It seems like it's really back in a big way, but nobody's really talking about it. What's the what's the story we're talking about from yesterday? So what happened is, is that hospitalizations are rising across the state of Ohio. The number of Ohio patients hospitalized with COVID hit 1,008 yesterday. That's the first time it's been over 1,000 since way back in March 1st. We have 141 COVID patients in ICUs across the state. That's up from July, but down from 195 back in March. Um, There's been 24,465 new cases in the latest weekly update. That's up 30% from the prior week. So that's averaging about 3,495 cases a day. So things are creeping up. Um, And there's variants out there. There, I don't know if the latest one, I get the numbers confused. I think it's BA 2.7 or whatever. So I don't know if it's been found in Ohio, but there are several variants circulating and they all seem to be more contagious than the last. So, Courtney, this wouldn't apply to you because you now have immunity, at least until another variant comes. But Lisa, Laura and I are have not had it. Are you going to change your habits and start wearing a mask in stores again? I'm thinking about it. Like once I'm through this period where I feel safe and I've cleared it all from my system. But I I'm not sure because I do have that immunity and that's the first time I've had that kind of boost. So that's kind of a nice little safety blanket. It feels at the moment, at least. I don't know. Once we get into fall and the cold season, it might be a different story. What about you, Lisa? Are you starting to think you need precautions I, again? I, I am. I think I'm more worried about my 92-year-old mom than anybody else. And she says nobody's wearing masks in the stores, but I believe she started to wear her masks again. I'm kind of, I wore it to the hospital yesterday, even though I wasn't required when I went to my doctor's appointment, uh, I still wore one. So I don't know, starting to get nervous because I've had friends who were like me, double boosted and finally got sick within the last couple months. So I don't know. I might be next. I know everybody's dropping. Laura, what about you? Are you just going to throw caution to the wind like you have through the whole pandemic? I mean, so far it's served me well, right? <laughs> it's the lake water is protecting me. I was at Playhouse Square last night and there were a few people with masks uh, and it was pretty full. So it was one of the things that you uh, you wonder about. And when I dropped my daughter off at, at summer camp, we were required to wear the mask. And I'm happy to wear a mask wherever anybody tells me I should be. Um, it, it's funny when you go to different places, who's got the requirements and who doesn't. So um, 
for right now, I'm enjoying the summer and sweaty masks are not my favorite part of it. My (laughs) wife loved the show that you saw last night. Did you and your mom like it? Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, but it was, I mean, the story is ultimately sad. Like it's some very upbeat music, but you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, they, yeah, it's it's not really uplifting. They had tough lives, but ever, but from what my wife said, everybody's dancing in their seats and doing the moves. So, yeah, there's a lot of moves. I mean, you watch the 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 Temptations and all of their very sharp chore- choreography, and you're like, that's just very cool. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Another good news story. Why is it remarkable that Cleveland Hopkins International Airport received a clean bill of health from the FAA for the second year in a row? Mara? I love how Susan Glazer wrote the story. Like, basically, we have no deficiencies that the FAA found in their report that we have to fix. And this is the basic standard for which airports operate. And yet... The outgoing airport director, Robert Kennedy, said it's a home run. And that's because seven years ago, Hopkins got hit with the largest fine in FAA history for a series of failures that involved snow and ice removal during three winters in a row. So we're going on two straight years of no required or recommended changes from the Federal Aviation Administration. So let's give our airport a round of applause. Well, and that's a big credit goes to Kennedy, the Robert Kennedy, the it's Robert, I mm-hmm. think, the airport yes, director. Robert. But he's retiring in in a matter of weeks or months, right? So Courtney, yeah, is there, there a replacement yet? I have not seen any news come down. So we'll have to stay tuned to that. That's yeah, of, next week he's retiring after five years on the job. It's one of the most important jobs in Cleveland for tourism. So I hope they find somebody good. He's done a terrific job. He, uh, I mean, to, to turn that around because that had long been a source of very bad news. A salute to Mr. Kennedy, and I hope Justin Bibb finds a good one. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Friday. That's it for the week. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney, for filling in all week long. We'll see you again next Wednesday. Layla will be back on Monday. Thanks to everybody who listens.